0: So it wasn't a shock um, that there would be some some strong reaction, but uh, I never hesitated to go to that tournament because that's just what I do. I mean.
1: Well, hello there, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the latest episode of the Bunker Podcast in association with Callaway. Oh, I wonder what we're going to talk about this week. Hey, eh? what? What a week, what a seven days it has been yet again in the golf world. You close your eyes, you turn your back for two seconds and bang, all hell breaks loose. But we will do our best to cover it, make sense of some of the stuff that's been going on and try and just inform and entertain you as as best we possibly can. One man who won't be doing that is Bryce Ritchie. He's currently up to his eyeballs in Superboc in Portugal, throwing them back with reckless abandon. But delighted to say we're joined by none other than mr alex perry
2: mr perry hello welcome how are you thank you i'm not up to my eyeballs in any alcohol because it's 10 44 in the morning <laughs> and that would be a concern <laughs> questions would justifiably be asked but it's something
1: to aspire towards isn't it as we hurtle towards retirement and lack of responsibility
2: yeah I, every day i wake up and i just think i need to be more bryce <laughs> That might be the first time on record that anybody has ever said that. And don't think I didn't notice your tongue firmly in your cheek. You well? You coping all right? I am well. It's been a it's been a mental couple of weeks, hasn't it? Like I feel like we obviously had eight nights in Rome for the Ryder Cup. Eight nights. And then I came home and I had sort of one and a half nights in my own bed because I left Ludicrously early to head to Scotland and then we did uh out, we did this live in front of people and it was absolutely mental absolutely mental it certainly
1: was so yeah the first ever bunkered podcast live took place at drygate in glasgow last thursday presented by eden mill lots of gin was had before, during, and after. I should add, I've spoken a lot about drinking so far in the first couple of minutes of this show. Always drink responsibly, ladies and gentlemen. (laughs) You know, don't don't just get drunk for the sake of it, that's silly. Only
2: when you're on holiday.
1: <laughs> yes, or hosting a podcast live in front of a room of more than 120 people. That edit's going to be very interesting. But no, yeah, we, we did it. We've spoken about it at length in the, the last few weeks on this show. You've probably seen posts galore on social media and whatnot, letting you know it was happening. And delighted so many of you were able to join us. It really was a, a very, very fun evening. As we speak, or as we record, our videographer Dex is currently doing his best to edit down that that
2: show. We spoke for what was it, Alex? About an hour and a half, something like that. Almost two hours, actually, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. It was quite weird having that little break in the middle, wasn't it? It was like because normally we we chuck to a break here, like Bryce goes for a wee, you and <laughs> you and I make small talk for two minutes, and then we sort of straight back in it. But it was a bit like. It, it was like being a proper gig, wasn't it? Where they're like, right, we'll be back in 20 minutes, or, you know, like a, a stand up <laughs> gig or something like that. It was like, oh, we have to go and sit in this room and actually talk about how it was. I mean, there's I a stand up gig but, with fewer laughs, probably. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It was, I mean, it was, there's, uh, no, I, I don't know if we have put this picture on social media or if you're going to, but there was just a wonderful picture which our photographer captured before we went on. And all of us just, it was black and white for starters, which gave it that kind of, indie band about to go on for their <laughs> first gig kind of vibe which i really liked but you know i'm looking at, at my phone like checking over my notes last minute bryce is almost praying I think. <laughs> you're down on your knees like it was oh, it's a wonderful photo I, down I on my knees popped... drinking gin to be clear drinking gin absolutely it was it was it, I, it was sort of a, a range of emotions, wasn't it? Yeah. it was sort of a, like we were. I mean, I don't think I remember my knees trembling that much before we walked on the stage. And <laughs> I'm sort of stepping up onto the stage, and I'm like, "Don't trip over the wires! Don't trip over the wires! Don't trip over the wires!" <laughs> like, just get yourself on the sofa. Once you start talking, it'll be fine. But no, absolutely wonderful from a personal perspective. Like, unbelievable that these people care about, like, care enough about what we say about yeah. golf to want to actually pay money and come and sit in a room and, and watch us do that. Just absolutely phenomenal. And huge thanks to everyone that showed up because it was... And, you know, huge thanks to the team behind the scenes as well. because 100%. They, like, you know, you and I showed up uh, sort of mid-afternoon and, you know, all the wheels were already in motion and it was just absolutely phenomenal to see. And you sort of walk into the room and you're like, oh, Jesus Christ, this is real. Do we actually have to do this. <laughs>
1: no totally it was a a proper team effort you know i I have to say thanks to eve for taking those amazing pictures to dex for filming it as i say that that video he's going to edit will be about half an hour of the best bits or maybe even the only bits that legally were we're allowed to share (laughs) if you were there you know exactly what i'm talking about so yeah but that will hopefully be out on youtube in the next week or so and we'll be sharing bits and pieces on social media as well so if you missed out if you weren't able to attend for whatever reason then you will at least be able to be part of it to to some degree and we will hopefully do more of these because frankly it was not bigging ourselves up here but it was a huge success and you know I think there's definite scope to do more when where we'll wait and see we're currently just basking in the afterglow of what was a a really fun evening also I know she'll pull me up for it if I don't say it Sarah Hall thank you for the Maltesers thank you for the M&Ms I didn't I I I wasn't being serious when I said that I had a rider but she came up with the goods, regardless. So next time, that rider's going to be a little bit more elaborate. But uh, yeah, a lot of fun. Thank you, everyone, for for coming along. If you if you were able to do it, and stay tuned for more. Right, Alex, let's 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 do it. <laughs> the official world golf rankings has denied Live its application to get ranking points. The news came through last night. It sort of staggered out, but Doug Ferguson. Hugely, hugely, hugely experienced golf journalist and one of the best operators that there is in the business. Appropriate enough that he should break the news. He had spoken to Peter Dawson, the chairman of the official World Golf Ranking, if that name's familiar, that's because he used to be secretary and CEO of the Royal and Ancient and Marnay before Martin Slumbers took the gig. But Peter Dawson said, and I'm paraphrasing here, but basically, lives closed shop environment, i.e., its contractual obligations to some of the 48, 50-odd players who play on it has made it nigh-on impossible for the rankings to properly measure the tour or the league against the 24 other tours that currently have world ranking accreditation. So it's a no. It's not a, a no forever. It's a no right now. And he was at pains in those quotes, Alex, to to Doug Ferguson to point out this isn't political, there is no personal agenda here, it's purely a technical matter. As it stands, Liv won't be getting world ranking points. We'll get into the nuts and bolts in a second, but first, your immediate reaction to that
2: news. I wasn't surprised in any way, shape or form. Sort of felt like this was always the way going to go, and I, and I don't think Liv Golf should be surprised either. It's interesting what you say there about Peter because actually he was Peter, like we're mates. Um, <laughs> Petey. He was he was almost apologetic in the way that he said it, wasn't mm. he? Because he, he even name-checked the likes of Dustin Johnson and Sergio Garcia as players who should be in the ranking. So I thought that was quite interesting, as was the fact that Jay Monahan, Keith Pelly, and Keith Waters recused themselves from the decision to avoid a conflict of interest, which, you know, given that that has been Live Golf's and Livgolf's fans biggest criticism of the decision that, that the likes of Monahan and Pelly you know, have reason to to deny. So I thought that was quite interesting. But look, they've Livgolf has got to meet the criteria. And it doesn't. It's a. it really is as simple as that. I don't I don't understand what the argument is. Like of course, DJ, Bryson Deshambo, Sergio Garcia, as I said there, Cam Smith. They are far better players than their world rankings dictate, but that's Live Golf's fault. Yeah, the players are cross, and and you know the likes of Ian Porter and Lee Westwood have you know, made no secret the fact that they're cross about it, but they shouldn't be cross at OWGR for setting the criteria. They should be cross at go for not meeting the criteria. I don't really understand where the argument is there, and that's why when I sort of sit down and you see all this shitstorm that blows up on social media when anything like this happens, like, I don't really understand what there is to argue. But like, am I missing something? I don't think so.
1: I'm sure that somebody listening, you know, first name, numbers, Union Jack, will be in touch on Twitter <laughs> to tell us that we've got it all wrong and we've missed X, Y, and Z. But... I think that That's just my dad. <laughs> I think that for me, when you look at the if you just assess live at purely top level, you know a purely top level, then it's it's essentially saying, right, Phil Mickelson, you've got a contract, you can't be relegated because contrary to popular opinion. I'm sick. Actually, beating this drum, there is relegation and promotion on live. There is a structure mm-hmm. for that, but yeah. the I think the OWGR's point is that it's not enough because there are guys on live in that 48 who, even if they finish last in the regular season standings, won't be relegated because they're a team captain and it's in their contracts that you're safe yeah. for a determined period of time. Therefore, if they were to get world ranking points then it's easier for them to get into major championships. They have a clearer and more... It's almost like they're getting a shortcut to to majors. Yeah. And it is very interesting that, as you rightly point out, the likes of Keith Pelley and Jay Monaghan recused themselves from this vote. The, the decision here not to give live world ranking points was, to, in a, in a large sense, made by the major championships. Which in itself brings its own questions because they clearly want to have the best fields. They want to have all the best mm-hmm. players taking part. And I suppose you could say, well, if Dustin Johnson isn't in the top 50 on the OWGR, is he still one of the best players in the world? And eventually players stop being one of the best players in the world. But I don't think we're there yet with DJ. So that makes the majors position a bit more difficult because they're now reliant on a system which quite possibly is no longer fit for purpose. I do agree that Liv has to fit the OWGR's criteria, but are we Honestly saying that the OWGR in its current format is robust enough to dictate and determine the fields for the most important events, the career-defining events in the game, I'm not convinced it is. Because if they can't figure this out, they're essentially saying, we don't know how to to rank live, so we're just not going to. That yeah. doesn't make them very robust for me.
2: Yeah, I, there's no argument there at all. I think for, for me, what... What really sticks with me when the likes of Westwood and Stenson in particular come out and speak against it is these are two players, remember, who 15 years ago or so, after being in the top 10, top 20 or wherever they were, fell off the face of the planet. Obviously, mm-hmm. Stenson had all those infamous uh, financial issues, shall we say. Hello, and Alan Stanford. And, well, yeah, and his, his game fell off a cliff as a result. Lee Westwood, same thing, fell off a cliff. Didn't he drop to like five hundred and something in the world? He did, yeah. And he had—I I can't remember if he lost his European Tour card or not—but he had to work his way back up. I mean, it's no—how is it any different? Like you—you you can't say to the likes of Rory McIlroy or whoever and say, "Right, you've got a PGA Tour card for X amount of years for X amount of money, and that's fine." Like, you, like if that was happening, the live, live golf side of matters would be up in arms. They'd be fuming. About of course, they would. It but we had this ludicrous situation and it's mentioned it like Doug I mean what a journalist that is oh, that guy is but he mentioned in his piece that he we had this ludicrous situation at the event in Orlando the week before the Masters the one the the Orlando uh, Live Golf Orlando that Kepka won where Sebastian Munoth had a 40 footer for birdie to force a playoff with Kepka but because Talk GC were the mighty talk <laughs> were leading the team event by Torquia a United shot, thank you very much Exactly. Because they were leading the team event by a single shot, he didn't want to risk losing that. Mm-hmm. So he lagged his putt to kick in range to ensure that they took that prize. So how can you possibly make the argument for world ranking points when you throw these sorts of equations into the mix? It's absolutely ludicrous. But, you know, we're talking about the majors and let's not forget the majors have shifted the goalposts before. Like This, is, yep. this wouldn't be the first time they would need to do it. You're absolutely bang on. They do not know how to deal with live golf. And when they do, I'm sure it will all work out fine and everyone will be happy. But last year's majors proved that having live golfers in the field really didn't make a difference. Most players were asked about it in pre-tournament press conferences. You and I were at most of those, especially at the Masters and at the Open. And you had, I mean... Rory McIlroy at the Masters was asked about it and he basically just went, Brooks Kepka's my mate, we live on the same street, we play golf together all the time, like, I'm here to win the Masters, I'm not here to talk about live golf, basically. And he just shut it down immediately. Mm -hmm. Kepka was brought into his pre-tournament. I mean, the fact that Kepka even had a pre-tournament press conference at the Masters probably tells you everything you need to know. And then he obviously went close. Then he won the PGA. Cam Smith, uh, DJ, Kepka, DeChambeau, all top 20 of the US Open. Cam Smith went to Hoylake as the defending champion. I just don't think it's a thing for the majors. And I think, actually, the likelihood is, is they're all sitting around that table, desperate to try and get those players in their fields because they want them. Because who doesn't want DJ and Bryson DeChambeau and Sergio Garcia in their field? Yeah, that's exactly it.
1: And I think it's going to be interesting to see what the major championships do because... Look at Dustin Johnson. He started the year as the 41st best player on the planet and we were all up in arms at that saying, there's not a hope in hell that there are 40 players on the planet right now who are better than him. He's now 121st. He is behind, two spaces behind, Grayson Murray. Three spaces behind Kevin Streelman. Sam Stevens, Samuel Stevens rather, is 117th. (laughs) Now, that is clearly a flawed system, because regardless of whatever technical issues live has, Dustin Johnson has been playing on it, and he has been winning on it. He has been one of yep. the better performers on Live mm-hmm. in spite of or because of the system. You can decide, you know i'm 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 not here to tell anybody whether or not the format is right or wrong. But of the forty eight players, 50, 51, 52, by the time you add in the subs that have been required. Dustin Johnson has been one of the star performers, but effectively the OWGR is ignoring all of that, pretending none of that exists, and it's ranking him solely on his major championship appearances, which haven't been great. So it's... US
2: Open aside, yeah.
1: Yeah, exactly. So essentially the the OWGR, with the decision that it's made, right decision, wrong decision, I, (laughs) again... Everyone's entitled to their own opinions on it. But I feel that the OWGR has created has actually harmed itself more than it has harmed Liv. It's shone a light on the fact that, you know what, we're pretty flawed. And you see the way that we rank players. Yeah, it's it's actually not universally viable, essentially. Yeah. And that's that's a bad look. But surely we'll make the majors in turn go, yeah, maybe we can't use the OWGR. To the extent we do going forward, maybe they create a sort of mini order of merit for live players and say, you know, the yeah. the top two uh, on the standings at the end of the year get
2: a spot in our, you know, in the Masters, in the Open, in the US Open, whatever it might be. Well, I don't think uh, Sebastian Munoz would be lagging putts from forty <laughs> if that was the case. But I mean, the argument falls down when you look at the Open, who want the most diverse field. Like, I talked about uh, shifting goalposts a moment ago, but we have this. <laughs> I'm going to call it a ludicrous situation because it it is really, where the RNA is so determined to have the widest range of players tee up in front of the claret jug that they hand out spots to players finishing third in tournaments on the other side of the planet Uh that no one's ever heard of. So you can't tell me they don't want these players in the field. If you want, you know, the the guy finishing third in the Fiji Open is is getting into the open field, but... You know, Dustin Johnson isn't because of his world ranking. Then the system is flawed. It really is as simple as that. Not fit for purpose. Never mind flawed. I mean, it, it just well, exactly. doesn't work. Yeah, exactly. And I think that gets lost a bit in this, really. But uh, I mean, look, we've we've got all this talk about the TGL as well. TGL is oh. it? Is it TGL? Yeah, TGL. The, yeah. the, the stadium tour. League with uh, Tiger Woods and Rory McIlroy. Now, I mean, the OWGR has the opportunity to just do the funniest thing he's ever done in the history of golf. <laughs> can just, yeah. T- uh, can you imagine Shane Lowry t- like getting into the top ten because he hold out in front of a in a like a what glorified football stadium? <laughs> 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 I suspect that won't happen. I
1: also can't imagine TGL will be belligerent enough to try and submit uh, a world rankings application. We'll see. That would be the ultimate, the ultimate uh, power move. But yeah, I think that this is a, a problem. It's going to create yet more noise at a time that the game doesn't really need more noise. It's funny we just come off the back of a Ryder Cup where we talked about golf pretty much exclusively, with the exception of some car park kerfuffles and hats. But we talked about <laughs> great golf being played, and it yeah. feels like i just in the blink of an eye we're back to talking about this polarizing nonsense. It's it's frustrating,
2: but I tell is you the what's frustrating is when Live Golf come out with their little... It's almost like toys out the pram, isn't it? Like, with their little statement. Why mm. don't they... Like, the mature thing to do is to come out and for Live Golf to say, right, we understand what they're saying, we appreciate what they're decision we appreciate their reasoning for it we're going to work really hard for not only the league but for its players and you know we're going to work with OWGR to see where we can get to because the as as peter dawson is saying like it is he's he's not saying this but he's implying that it is a huge shame that these players aren't aren't ranked so i mean the statement said that it robs fans (laughs) it doesn't
1: I've got the statement here if you want. It says the OWGR's sole objective is to rank the best players across the globe. Today's communication makes clear that it can no longer deliver on that objective. Players have historically remained subject to a single world ranking to qualify for major championships, the biggest events, and for corporate sponsor contract value. Feels like Greg Norman added that bit in. <laughs> a ranking which fails to fairly represent all participants, irrespective of where in the world they play golf, robs fans, players, and all of golf stakeholders of the objective basis underpinning any accurate recognition of the world's best player performances. It also robs some traditional tournaments of the best fields possible. It goes on. Professional golf is now without a true or global scoring and ranking system. There is no benefit for fans or players from the lack of trust or clarity, as long as the best player performances are not recognised. Live will continue to strive to level set the market. So fans, broadcasters and sponsors have the assurance of an independent and objective ranking system and the pure enjoyment of watching the best golf in the world. Now, to your point, Alex... I actually think there's a lot of stuff in there that is bang on. I mean, the first line, it's sole objective is to rank the best players across the globe yep. and this makes clear it can no longer deliver. That is a big tick. But yes, the then, the, the language and the tone just gets a little bit argumentative. Again, belligerent when it's talking about robbing fans and
2: robbing traditional tournaments of the best fields. And- How can you say, no disrespect to, I don't know, I'll pick a name out, Taylor Gooch, No one gives a shit whether Taylor Gooch is fifteenth in the world or 115th. Like no, as in, no general golf fan really cares about that. Like no one looks at the OWGR and goes, Oh God, I wish Taylor Gooch was higher. (laughs) Like this is it's ruining my enjoyment of the of golf on a Sunday night that Taylor Gooch isn't ranked higher in the world. And I'm being a bit facetious here, but it's it's actually worrying the way that that, as you just said there. The statement turns from being actually yeah okay they're going to be reasonable about this. Oh my god, why have they suddenly <laughs> like it's like it's like Greg Norman like some someone in HR or or the PR department at Live Golf went yeah right we've written this really nice statement we're we're saying that and then Greg Norman's gone no. So right, get rid of all that. That sense that sensible stuff. Get rid of all that. I, I want to I want to accuse them of robbing the fans. I want I need to go. If we go if we go after the fans, the fans will side with us. Like it just the whole thing it was just it's a, well, I look, it won't be a PR disaster because Live Golf's uh followers, so to speak, will stick by them no matter what. But if I'm if I'm a Live Golf fan, and I'm not, not a fan, but I'm looking at that and I'm, I'm thinking, God, guys, we need to just get, like, this needs to end. Like you said, like, once again, we're talking about golf in a negative light. Yeah. And and one, this needs to end. It really, it needs to get sorted out. And actually, you say about, you're asking me about my initial reaction last night. It was, A, not surprised, but B, like, oh, it's going to drag on for so long. That's it. I, I, I can't remember who I said this
1: to recently, or if it was even on a podcast or something, but... I know for a fact I said this, see if you think 2022 was bad and noisy and divisive, just wait for 2024. Honestly, I think it's going to get a hell of a lot worse before it gets better. And certainly, (laughs) all the chat about the framework agreement, I mean, there's questions to be asked here as well. I mean, you know, now that apparently we're meant to be working towards peace and harmony, did the PGA Tour and DP World Tour have anything to say about Liv's application Is it not in their best interests to try to help them get a little bit of what they want? Is it not? Again, questions to be asked about the the viability of that. We're led to believe that, I don't think it's really any secret, but the PGA Tour is actively trying to source American investment to replace the investment that it would be getting from Saudi Arabia's public investment fund in order to back out of this deal. There's talk that the deadline of... January the 1st 2024 for this agreement to become something more tangible and robust that that's being kicked down the road. Certainly it doesn't appear that all the, the parties involved and who were named in the framework agreement when it came out at the start of June, it doesn't appear that the appetite to find peace and harmony is what we were led to believe that it is. So I think it's massively irresponsible by the PGA Tour. I think it's massively sneaky to try and source other US based investment. Jay Monaghan has said previously we can't win a dollar fight against the against the Saudis. So why are you still trying? Do you know what I mean? Like, you yeah. no matter what American investment you find, you're still not going to win that fight. It's it's impossible for you to win that fight. So I think he's again being massively responsible to try and secure his own position first and foremost at the expense of everybody else and at the expense of the PGA Tour's best interests. I have to ask, I mean what must Yasser Al Ramayan be thinking about all this? You know, played in the <laughs> Dunhill Lynx last week alongside Peter Dawson. Did he know at that point that the application was going to be turned down? Does he look at this, you know, rejection of Liv for World Ranking Points and go, right, well, maybe Liv isn't the answer? Or does he just double down and say, you know what, fuck you. We're going to spend more money. We're going to be more aggressive in our recruitment of players. We're going to throw the kitchen sink at John Ram, Hideki Matsuyama, Cantley, Showfully. I mean... So many questions here, and it feels, Alex, like we are right in the eye of the storm at the moment, when, you know, the dust settles and everything clears, we're going to be left with another, I'm being slightly
2: facetious with the term, but we're almost back to the battle lines and back to the war zone again, are we not? Yeah, it's, it's, like I said before, it's incredibly frustrating when you just sort of read these statements and you think, oh God, the next few months are going to be unbearable, but Mm -hmm. I mean, Andrew Waterman, to use his real name, uh, (laughs) who will be... Well, he is obviously... The thing I can't get my head around is all of this has happened because Yassir just wants a seat at the top table. That's all he wants. That became quite apparent in this framework agreement stuff that was leaked out, is that he just wants membership of Augusta. He wants membership of the RNA. He wants this and that. And you just think surely you can just afford to buy that stuff. Like you've got enough money to just go, yeah, I'll just give you like 100 million. There you go. Can I please play Augusta a couple of times a year? It just... Look, you say that there are seemingly hundreds of questions coming out of this, but we don't have the answers for any of them. Precisely. That's, that's the most frustrating thing for me is I'm looking at these things and I'm thinking, I need to know. I need to know what Jay Monahan thinks about this right now. I mean, he's you know he's very careful with his words, but I mean, that that is... We talk about lift golf seemingly. He's careful throwing, with his words until it comes up. to 9-11 families and weaponizing a well, tragedy for his yeah, own benefit. Quite, quite. Um, but he's 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 more switched on with his PR department than Live Golf is. So yeah. it'll it'll be interesting to see if if Yassi comes out and says anything on this matter. Let's not forget Peter Dawson didn't have a say in this, by the way. Yeah, that's he didn't actually too. have a vote. I think we should probably point that out. So I mean, to be on a, a fly on the wall in the next conversation between those two would be interesting, wouldn't it? But oh god, I know. No, I'm I I think really. It, it it's just, like, we say, like, oh, God, this is going to drag on. But actually, there's also the other little part of me, like the devil on my other shoulder, just going, God, this is going to be so good when he comes out and starts laying into the PGA Tour and all the <laughs> framework agreement just collapses. And then we just carry on with this for another 12 months. Like, do, you, do you think the framework agreement will collapse? I'm not entirely sure how it can't. Mm-hmm. Like, it's just every... When this happened, it was, like, the biggest golf news since the creation of Live Golf and everyone was like the whole golf world whether it was fans or media or players or anyone involved in it were like it was the last thing we expected was these what we felt like mortal enemies or like this you know coming together for a global peace in the game of golf and then it just sort of fizzled out we just sort of went oh uh, oh, we're bored of that now we're going to move on to to the next thing which was I don't know probably the Ryder Cup but we're like Justin Thomas is in the Ryder Cup I'm so angry about that I've forgotten about all this other stuff (laughs) So I don't know. Like I, I sort of think, how can it? It's not. It's like as you say, there. It's absolutely no secret that Jay Monahan and the PGA Tour are seeking investment from within their own country. So how can Yasser and whoever else not be looking at that and going, "Well, hang on a second, But then perhaps they don't care because, as I said, all they want is the is that top seat at the table. So, yeah, that that's the thing. I think Yasser's
1: Yasser's thoughts and all of this is probably the. The, the bit that's going to shape the future of golf and of live And of the PGA Tour and of the framework agreement I, You know, let's not forget For all of the unbelievable hot air coming out of the PGA Tour that Or people around the PGA Tour and fans of it That, you know what, we've, we're we've holding all the aces here You know, yeah. this is this is going to be good for us We'll be in charge Jay's going to be the boss And it's going to be the end of live And we'll just incorporate the bit to that that we like it's like, pump the brakes. Yasser is the guy with the money. And he who pays the piper, 10 times out of 10, calls the tune. So to think that they're going to sit down around the negotiating table and Jay's going to say, yeah, so if you want in, Yasser, you're going to have to get rid of Liv. You're going to make me the boss and blah, blah, blah. We done. To think that Yasser wouldn't have a, <laughs> a negotiating strategy, wouldn't have some conditions of his own, is just breathtakingly naive. And exactly. maybe that's how we've ended up where we are, that the PGA Tour doesn't like that fact, and that's why it's trying to back out and get investment from the US, which is only going to intensify the problems going forward. It's only going to be more divisive going forward, because live in Saudi money, I don't think it's going to disappear without an absolutely monumental
2: fight. We discussed this on the, the pod after the whole framework agreement stuff, but there's no... Like, Jay, Mon- Monahan, Jay, Monahan, Jay Monahan does not... He he's not going to settle for being number two, is he? No, he's he's essentially the most powerful man in golf right now. Why would he give that up? He would. He just he wouldn't, would he? Like, why would he move on? So why would he then go? All right, okay. If you put a bit of money in uh, in Yasser, you're now my boss. I'll do anything you say. Like that's incredibly. I don't want to say embarrassing for Jay Monahan, but it's yeah, that that he'll definitely he you know this guy's got an ego. Let's not forget yeah, exactly, that. yeah. And is, it's, it's quite true, I
1: think that Jay doesn't want to be number two He doesn't want to be answerable to anybody that he doesn't want to answer to But he also seems to want money and power And the Saudis look like they've got that and can provide him with more of it So it's one of those ones, you can't have it all your own way And it feels at the moment, and I stand to be totally wrong in this But it feels to me from the outside looking in That there are some parties who want it all their own way. And that's not how you negotiate, that's not how you get to a resolution. So we are in for an exciting few months. Anyway, let's move to the more genteel world of baseball caps. (laughs) Patrick Cantley, can't find a hat that fits apparently, except when it's got a sponsor's logo on it and he's been paid to wear it. That's strange. Patrick Cantley, we all know about Hatgate and all that stuff that kicked off in Rome. And well, there's been a little wrinkle added to that over the past few days by another fantastic journalist we spoke about, Doug Ferguson, but Michael Bamberger, formerly of golf.com and now with the the Fire Pit Collective, you'll be hearing more about the Fire Pit in part two. But Michael Bamberger took the story forward, if you like, and revealed that (laughs) Patrick Cantley may indeed have been refusing to wear a hat at the Ryder Cup because he wasn't being paid. So... He was on the first tee alongside Xander, his good buddy for their Friday morning foursome's match in Rome against Rory and Tommy Fleetwood, when NBC reporter Steve Sands reportedly asked him a simple question. Steve said, no hat. Cantley apparently replied, I'll wear a hat when I'm paid to be here like he is, motioning in the general direction of the PGA of America's senior director, of Public Awareness and External Relations, Julius Mason, who was standing nearby. Bamberger, I don't think, was there to hear the remark himself, but he says it was confirmed to him by three people who heard it, so he's managed to corroborate the story. An interesting wrinkle, Alex, isn't it? That that puts a new twist on, on, on proceedings.
2: Yeah, I think it's sort of gone under the radar somewhat that actually the general feeling at the Ryder Cup was nobody believed Cantley when he said about, you know, we spoke about it in our commute podcast, but when he was saying, I can't find a hat that fits, it's as simple as that. And, you know, he was asked about whether or not he should be paid to play in the Ryder Cup. And he just said, you know, he, he, fo- he fobbed it off, didn't he? He didn't, you know, he, he didn't give an, you know, he didn't say, I like, I want to play in the Ryder Cup and I absolutely, I'm not interested in being paid. I love playing in it. I'm here to represent my country. He just sort of went, that's not about that. And that's, you yeah, you just to, to fob it away in that manner was that was the moment for for you and i i mean i think we read that quote live mm-hmm. on the on the commute podcast because all this information was sort of dropping as we were recording that evening in your hotel room but <laughs> I, I remember you and i both just sitting there going well don't believe him why would be why would you believe him unless you come out with a really robust statement and you know he, you can sort of even without all of that, you can sort of look at Patrick Cantley and Xander Chauffeur and just go, Yeah, you are you you are the two guys. That, like if someone said, Who are the two guys causing problems in the in the US team room? Those are the two players you point at, aren't they? Like just, they'd be the they'd like, be the
1: first suspects for sure. Cause I mean Patrick Cantley walked around the entire week before even that that story that Jamie Weir broke, before even it came out. Cantley was stomping around the place with a face like a punched quiche. I mean, he was just, me. he was just absolute misery. Likewise, Xander, showfully. And clearly, clearly, they believe that they should be getting paid some way, somehow, for being there. Or at least it sticks in their craw that other people are being paid, but they are not. I would have yeah. so much more respect for them if they just came out and said, yeah, we, we think we should be getting paid. We're not, and we're here, and we're going to do our best to win for the team this week. But yeah, you're quite right. The point remains that we're not getting paid and we think we should. I would respect that so much more. I think absolutely. most people would respect it so much more. Absolutely. they're just, I don't know. The, the whole thing just stinks. And I'm i am not here to defend Jamie Weir. You know, absolutely, you know, that that's not my goal at all. I know Jamie. I get on well with Jamie. I actually you know, people are giving him grief, saying he's a hack and he's this and he's that. Jamie's a great journalist. That's why he's doing the mm-hmm. job he's doing. Yep. Was he 100% right? You know what? I don't know. My, my hunch is it doesn't look like he was, but I'll tell you something else. He wasn't 100% wrong. There was a lot of what he said that we're now learning has more truth to it than the American team. And I include the likes of Steve Stricker coming out and quote-tweeted them saying this is just totally false. And, you know, Patrick Cantley as well. Jamie's comments had more truth to them than I think the Americans are making out. And I don't like that. I don't like dishonesty.
2: No, I agree. And, you know, I said this in the <coughs> podcast live the other night. You just don't see it from the other side. You just don't see it from the Europeans. I mean, uh, apparently, John Rahm has said this week that he would pay to play in the Ryder <laughs> Cup, let alone be paid, which is astonishing. And, you know, I said this the other night that you get the likes of uh, Ludwig Oberg and Nikolai Huygard and Bob McIntyre, who are by no means set for life in terms of money. You could make that case for every other player in the Ryder Cup that they have already made enough money to be set for life. Uh, not only for them, but for their kids and their grandkids as well. Those three in particular, don't get me wrong, have made a lot of money in their, you know, their career so far. But they are certainly not set for life. And none of those, if you had said to any of those guys, like, do you think you should get paid to play in the Ryder Cup? They would say, no, I, I play in it because I love playing for Europe. It's something I've dreamed of since I was a kid. It just wouldn't even cross their mind. And I think that's the the uh, an incredibly important difference between the american players and the european players and for me and again i said this the other night but it's i just think it's a massive shame like it, it like don't get me wrong it as a journalist it was absolutely magnificent when all that you know that awesome one, the excitement i listened i listened but i hadn't actually listened to our podcast that we recorded as that car park i don't want to call it a fight as a car park it yeah, I was gonna say incident. Um <laughs> as that happened, you know, we hit record straight after we saw that. And like the first five minutes is just basically me and you going, What the fuck has happened? Like, what was that all about? And I listened back to it and I was like, that was great. Like that was a it was a brilliant podcast. It was very funny because you you and I like, just trying to riff off the this ludicrous situation that is basically developing in front of our eyes as we're you know, we're sort of trying to record. Through our microphones, but also our eyes are just locked to social media, like refreshing, trying to find- trying to make like sense. All. Well, exactly, and that. So, yeah, like as a journalist, like it's brilliant that that's happening. You're like, oh my god, this a mate, but it sort of did overshadow the Ryder Cup a little bit. In and, and again, we were talking about uh, looking at golf in a negative sense. Now, if I'm if I'm an outsider, if I'm not, say say if I'm not a huge golf fan, I'm someone that maybe just chips in for the majors and the Ryder Cup. I'm I'm the sort of person to be like, I absolutely love that they go to the Ryder Cup and they play for the love of playing in the Ryder Cup. How, is there anything else in sport where that actually happens? Like genuine, that's a genuine question. Is there any other sporting occasion where people show up and play for free for the love of playing the game and the love of representing their country outside of the Olympics, of course, because that sort of feels like a, a different level altogether. I, I, I can't think of anything off the top. No, of my I head. can't. I was you know, I was trying to think of something where that would happen. I was sort of trying to think of like testimonials in football and stuff, yeah, like that, or like or soccer aid or something like that. But it's charity, so so- it's different. Um, <laughs> so it's it's slightly different in the in the aspect of its charity, but yeah, it's it's just one of those things where I just think that is so good like one of my favorite things about the Ryder Cup is they show up and they have this tremendous passion to to fight for Europe or fight for America and you know there's this intense rivalry and okay we've got this whole thing where the home team just seems to be landsliding it at the moment and that obviously needs addressing but that the the whole ethos of the Ryder Cup has just been blown up by one dickhead who's just stropping about the place and going oh I just want to get a bit of money oh, don't have enough money so yeah and that more. that that's the part that really I, I just I have no
1: sympathy for him whatsoever because Patrick Cantley turned pro in 2012 right he was born in uh let me see 1992 by which time Phil Mickelson had already won on the PGA Tour just to put some context around it Patrick Cantley in real terms has been pro for what Five, ten minutes. He's won forty-two million dollars on the PGA tour. That's prize money alone. That doesn't include his bonuses. That doesn't include his endorsements. He's the twenty-seventh highest earning player in PGA tour history. Xander Schaufley is thirty-first with thirty-nine nearly million dollars in earnings. Guys. It's one week out of 104 that you're being asked to play for something that's not you, that you're being asked to give something back. Is that that much of an imposition? Does honour not count to you? Does the opportunity to do something that every other golfer, whether they're an 18 handicapper or playing on the corn ferry or struggling to break the top 100 in the FedEx Cup standings, that they would kill to do, does that mean nothing to you guys? I mean, are you just sitting there and going, Yeah, pay me. It's absolutely pathetic. Do not get me wrong. I understand it. You're looking at all the money this thing's generating. You're going, why am I not getting a bit of that? But that's the problem. The fact that you're looking at that and saying, I deserve some of it. Maybe you do, but you don't need it. And you can actually contribute to the game by just sucking it up for a week. The DP World Tour keeps its lights on largely prior to all this extra money flying in from all the sources it's now getting money from, but the DP World Tour is so reliant and has been on the money made from the Ryder Cup. The PG of America is able to use some of the profits, not all of it, but some of the profits it makes for coaching schemes, for its pros to help develop grassroots golf. And you're sitting there with your multi-millions in your huge mansion, staring out at all your cars and going, yeah, I need some of it though.
2: Just... You know what? See if that's the question. If that's that much of an imposition, just don't play. Yeah, you're saying how much more money do you need? I'm going to throw another question out. How much would the PGA of America actually be prepared to pay? Because unless they're paying 10 million per player to show up to the Ryder Cup, what does it matter? Like if they said, "Oh, okay, fine, we'll give you a million each," like that, to Patrick Cantley there's nothing. He should just Throw it on the pile. Like that's you know that's, that's he probably spends that much on a stake. <laughs> so like w- like what? What amount do they need before they actually go? Yeah, okay, fine, we'll come and play. I mean, he's talking there. I mean, that's that's what I hated most about this comment about uh, if it's true, of course, and and why wouldn't it be when he's talking about this PJ of America's what is it, senior director of public awareness and mm. external relations, which is just the be- best job title ever. Love it, um, Julius Mason. So let's say, for the sake of argument, Julius Mason earns. Five grand a week working for the PJ of America. So, it's the argument there. You can just go to Patrick Cantley. All right. Well, if that's your problem, he earns five grand. So, okay, fine. We'll give you five grand for showing up to the Ryder Cup. Like it's it's the so whole obtuse. thing. It's ludicrous. Exactly. It's so obtuse
1: because Patrick Cantley playing in that event with all the extra eyeballs on it. If he plays well, which he did, by the way, he was fucking amazing. He was the yeah outside of Max Homer, he was the best player on the American team. Absolutely. Exactly phenomenal performance in rome so if he plays well as he did then does he not think that all of the extra eyeballs is going to be good for his brand that's going to bring people into him it's going to make people talk about him more which is good for your pip standings it's going to entice other potential sponsors to go see that guy we want a bit of that action how how narrow-minded is he about all of this it's just you can probably tell it exasperates me (laughs) no you should not be getting paid for playing in the Ryder Cup no you shouldn't even be thinking that you should be getting paid for playing in the Ryder Cup it's just it is absolute nonsense and I had to laugh we're we're going to bring Alan Shipnick on in the the second part of the show which is coming up very soon I hasten to add but Alan has written the the book about live golf live and let die we'll talk about it more as I say in part two but a lot of the excerpts from that have started leaking onto the internet some of the juicier parts you know, that, that's what happens when you release a book, folks You put the juicy bits out Because, you know, see the beige bits That's like filling it out That's not going to shift to any copies But he's finding his excerpts are getting shared And Justin Thomas last week Put out a tweet, and I'm paraphrasing But effectively, I think I speak for me and a lot of players When I say we're sick and tired of Alan Shipnick Spreading negativity, right about the positive stuff He does! He does and has (laughs) made a living doing it. Who do you think was writing all the cover stories and essays on the Masters when players were winning that year in, year out for Sports Illustrated? That was Alan. You know, this this entitlement that some players seem to have these days, this, only write good things about me. No, you're public figures and you should be scrutinised and held to account like anybody else. When you do something good, we celebrate you and praise you. When you do something bad, we will absolutely call it out. That's the job. And by the way, I don't see Justin Thomas retweeting or sharing many of the covers, the magazine covers and such like that he's appeared on, but he wants to talk about negative press because as if that's the only thing he gets. Justin, you've done well. You've had tons and tons of positive PR. Why are you not talking about that?
2: Yeah, I think if I if I have the money that Justin Thomas has, you can write whatever you want about me. I, don't, I just ignore it. I don't care. I, why would i read the newspapers why would i read social media if i had that much money just, that's what that's what blows my mind the most just get off social media why would you care why why would you like what what justin thomas doesn't need a twitter account like what what's he getting out of that exactly just all this stuff and then finding so but you're absolutely right i can't, I, I genuinely cannot add anything to what you just said there 100 bang on
1: if they want pr just employ more pr people they've got some exactly ability. exactly very quickly, Tiger Woods is back hitting balls yet again. It feels like we've said this a million times because what comeback are we on now? One million and three. Mm, yeah, I think so, yeah.
2: Oh, we into the millions, are we? Cool. It must be
1: by now. <laughs> Obviously, some footage of him clipping balls at the Tiger Woods Junior Invitational, I think it was, has been shared quite a lot on social media this week. Very quickly, Alex, wh- what did you think? How did he look? Were you surprised by anything?
2: Uh, no, not surprised. Just sort of happy to see him hitting golf balls because that's what we want to remember Tiger Woods as, a, you know, the, the phenomenal golfer that he is and try and push all the other questionable stuff to the back of our minds. What, questionable stuff? No, <laughs> no, <I> don't want to. You just reminded me of when um, Jermaine Jackson was on Nevermind. Do you remember Nevermind the Buscar? Oh, yes. And, um, Simon Amstel used to used to present it and he, Jermaine Jackson was on and he went what about Michael has he ever done anything weird it's <laughs> <laughs> a bit like that with Tiger uh, Woods isn't it a little bit uh, no I'm really excited look I think people people will people who know more about you know the technical side of the golf swing have come out this week and said even you know Lewis on on our team has come out and said you know that right knee is obviously still a concern because mm. of the way that it buckles through the swing don't really know what that means but you know the guy's basically had an opera the guy's basically got a new leg so mm. it can't possibly be a surprise my biggest thing for me was that ahead of his withdrawal at the masters this year he was re- he was really struggling to even walk like i i was wincing watching him walk down the first fairway mm. and I just so imagine how he was feeling, and I just thought it, he's not going to finish this tournament. It's just not going to happen. And then, of course, he withdrew when the uh, forecast came in for. He, he withdrew on Saturday, didn't he? And then the the horrible forecast came in, and then yes. he was like, "No, nah, I've, I've had enough of this." The, the rain and the winds that destroyed those trees came over, and he was like, "I've had enough." But, yeah, I remember yeah. Jason Day made some comment that one of the screws in his foot or his ankle
1: or his leg had popped through the skin and just gone, yeah. fair enough. That that's a decent enough reason to withdraw to be yeah. fair.
2: Like started rusting. <laughs> um no, look, I again I'm just I'm as obviously a huge Tiger Woods fan, for me, it's just nice to see him hitting golf balls and nice to see him smiling and laughing and, and joking around with the kids and, and Max Homer was there and Blocky was there. I saw Oh right brilliant right? so no show without Bond. the block party is carrying on. So yeah, it's it's just nice. I think that's We're talking about positive golf stories. It's just nice to see him back hitting golf balls. When are we going to see him again? Perhaps the Hero Challenge, which is November the 30th. Do you think he plays in that? I don't
1: think he plays in that. I think he shows up and probably speaks to the press for the first time. and He's just there in an official capacity. I think he'll play the PNC with Charlie yeah so that's, the,
2: that's a couple of weeks after yeah in
1: December. he won't yeah. want to miss out on that it's just a, yeah, like, a fun boondoggle as they say in the states and he can use yeah. a cart as well obviously it's all I think all of this is ramping up towards a, a master's full competitive return you know like a course that he knows so well he doesn't need to play before then yeah I think that's when he's most likely going to make his comeback I certainly don't think we'll be seeing him at Riviera like we did this year so yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I agree with you though Alex great to see him back hitting balls because it's Tiger Woods for god's sake why why would you not like seeing him back doing what he's done better than anyone
2: else, not obviously? Nice to finish on a positive there. Like oh that.
1: yeah. Love it. Anyway, part two coming right up, as I say, we've got a chat with Alan Shipnick right after this break.
0: All golfers can agree, hitting it far feels great. But does it feel great? A first in forging has created irons that have never felt better. Paradigm was precisely constructed with the first ever AI design forged 455 face cup and an all new speed frame to enhance speed and feel, earning 15 out of 15 stars from the Golf Digest hot list. This is the new Paradigm in performance from Callaway. Welcome back. Part two of this
1: week's Bunkered podcast in association with Callaway, Michael and Alex with you today. Bryce, if you're listening from the sun lounger in Portugal, go and have another super bock on us, bring a receipt back, we'll just stick it through expenses as well. Why not? You've earned it. Issue 206 of Bunkered is out now. It's got Ian Poulter on the cover. Fantastic edition, full of lots of interesting stuff. Poultz, obviously, is the, the main attraction. Our guy, Ben Parsons, spent a bit of time with Poultz and then spoke to a bunch of people around him as well, his team, his, his brother, even, to try and paint a full picture of Ian that maybe a lot of people don't know. Yes, he's a divisive character over his move to live and some of the things that he's said. No, he's never shied away from controversy and having a, a bold opinion. And I think Ben's done a brilliant job capturing all of that and giving people just a bit more of a rounded Sense of Poulter. If you saw the episode with him on Full Swing earlier this year, think that, but with hopefully more in there as well. So, a, a great piece done by Ben. And there's also a really cool piece on golf pioneers, looking at some of the people who've really helped shape and change the game. I've got an interview in there with Eric Trump. I, I've ordered extra tin hats to deal with the flack from that. But, you know, go in with an open mind. That's all I'd say because. Some of the stuff he says is, I think, quite interesting. Some of it's mental. But we've gone in with no agenda <laughs> I wondered if whatsoever. you were going to say that as
2: well. Yeah, <laughs> I I mean, let's, bring that
1: let's, let's be honest. Would you expect anything less? Because, well, the Trump family make grandiose statements, and that is clearly an inheritable trait, as, as I discovered. But Eric was fantastic, You know, really good of him to give us some of his time. And I think it, it, whether you like what the Trump family are doing in golf or like any of them or dislike any of them, just, as I say, go on with an open mind, read what they have to say, and that'll maybe help inform your opinion of them, good or bad, going forward. So yeah, lots to get into in the latest edition of The Mag, issue 206, on sale now from all good news agents across the UK. Better yet, just get a subscription. Honestly, it's it's cheaper for a start, and it's so much easier. You get The Mag delivered straight to your door. Bunkered.co.uk forward slash sub offer. Right then, so, like I've mentioned in part one, I caught up with Alan Shipnick, who's been on the pod previously, top man is Alan, he's a sensational journalist and even you know, a phenomenal writer, and he's got a new book out all about Live Golf and how it happened, it's called Live and Let Die, and I was curious enough to go after him and find out a little bit more about his motivations for writing it and some of the stuff he uncovered. Here we go. Alan, hello, welcome back to the Bunkered Podcast. Thank you, Michael. I'm delighted to be here. It's great to have you. And what a time to bring you in because your latest book, Live and Let Die, the inside story of the war between the PGA Tour and Live Golf is about to go on sale. I'm very lucky I've had a chance to to preview the book and to read it. And honestly, I was telling you this before we went on the air and I promise it's the truth. I absolutely love it. It's an extraordinary book. So highly recommend everyone go check it out. Let's let's start at the start, Alan. I guess the the obvious question is, why
0: and when did you have the idea to to write the book? Well, you know, obviously, in some ways, Phil Mickelson kicked off the the, the live golf era. You know, the things he told me for my Mickelson biography when when he called them scary mofo's and and all that <laughs> other stuff. I mean, I truly had not been paying close attention to Live at that point because. You know, the precursor to all of this, the premier golf league had been knocking around since at least 2018 when when it went public and the, the Saudis had come in as investors and there'd been all this talk for years about a disruptive new tour and they could never get it off the ground. And so I had sort of started to tune it out, but the things that Phil told me, and then of course the, the blowback that was attached to his comments. I, I think that's when, when myself and a lot of other people realized that, wow, this is really happening. Like this is getting real, and um, you know, so uh, the Michelson biography came out last May, and a month later, he you, you know, he went into exile. Then he returned to public life at Live London, and so I, I felt compelled to be there. And of course, I got bounced out of the, of his press conference <laughs> by a couple of necklace goons. And there's a, a great photo of Greg Norman lurking behind me, like the Grim Reaper. You know, a lot of people have seen that photo; it's a classic. <laughs> and um, and from there, I went to the U.S. Open in, in Boston straight away. And I had lunch with uh, my longtime uh, editor and my longtime literary agent. And wow. I thought we were just—it was just sort of a celebratory thing around the release of the fill book. But when I got there, they had. Negotiate on the slide a contract for this live book, and uh, I couldn't say no. It's just such a really a once in a lifetime story, uh, for, for anyone in this business. I mean, you've got these huge brand name protagonists. I mean, every important golfer of the last 30 years has been sucked into the story, whether it's Phil or Tiger, Rory, you know, Dustin Johnson, Bryson, you name it. Um, and then you have, uh, of course, these these incredible Shakespearean themes of betrayal and uh, legacy, and loyalty, and greed, and vengeance, and and then you have this this incredibly complex and fascinating geopolitical uh, issue around the Saudi money and its influence, not only in sports but society at large, and. It was just so much going on, so many subplots, so many protagonists, uh, so much controversy, so much you know energy. Uh, I I just, even though I was a little burnt out coming off the the Mickelson book and all that controversy, I was like, I got to do this. I mean, it's just this is why we get in this business, is to tell incredible stories and i don't think in my lifetime as a, as a sports writer there's ever going to be one that's more interesting than this it's interesting you say that because you know you've, you've been covering golf for for so long alan i
1: mean is this live is this the biggest thing that that has happened I, I know it's been the most
0: disruptive but the biggest would you say so i mean definitely non-tiger woods division you know tiger winning the 97 masters that's obviously a monumental moment for the sport <laughs> tiger winning the 2019 masters Tiger's sex scandal, Tiger's car crash. You know, there's there's a lot of Tiger um, moments that are that are huge. But you know, this this transcended the sports world. I mean, uh, this story has been on the front page of the Wall Street Journal dozens of times in the last year and a half. You know, the New York Times. And, you know, I, my sister is not a golfer, um, but she has a lot of interesting friends, and they're all super tuned in. The story. And if, if I you know, I went to, I met her for dinner and met, and met a couple of her friends and they were peppering me with the questions. Like they've never cared whatsoever about anything I've written over the last 30 years, you know, they're, um, but this, this has gone way beyond golf. I mean, you're getting into these large questions of, of morality and geopolitics and, um, and you have Donald Trump has been sucked into this story. You know, Mohammed bin Salman, the crown prince of Saudi Arabia, I mean, this is like serious box office that goes way beyond a boutique sport. So yeah, I mean, I think the scale of it, the impact, you know, the congressional hearings that would happen on Capitol Hill in the United States. I mean, it's just, it's just become this monstrous story with so many tentacles. And, um, so yeah, to me, it it, Uh, i think i
1: think it's the biggest you know you you mentioned at the top there the fact that you were at live london the the inaugural event i saw you there i must admit i was surprised to see you there because of the the fallout i guess that had happened with all of the phil mickelson stuff and you know his saudi comments that he made to you that really as you say it it was the in some ways the genesis of of all of this in in a mainstream sense Talk me through the, the decision to go to, to London and, you know, what your expectations were arriving at Centurion. Did, I mean, you must have expected there was going to be some kind of blowback from either Liv or
0: Mickelson or both. Yeah, I mean, people have been mad at me off and on for a long time for the things I write. <laughs> I mean, I just, I feel like I have a sort of a sacred relationship with the readers and they count on me to give it to them straight. And... Not everyone on the golf beat has the same approach. And so feathers get ruffled and, and, you know, there's periodically in my life, there's, uh, there's, a, I get, I get some, uh, some commentary from closing chiefs in, in the golf establishment. And so it wasn't a shock um, that there would be some, some strong reaction, but uh, I never hesitated to go to that tournament because that's just what i do i mean mm-hmm. i cover professional golf this was a this was a big this is a big moment for the sport uh monumental moment really and so it, it all came together very last minute i mean if you recall mickelson had been very coy about when he was going to return and they didn't announce that he would be at, at that event i think until monday of tournament week and summer had just started here in the u.s when my when my kiddos were on vacation and so I, I got there on the morning, of the first round, I mean, flying overnight and I didn't really know what to expect, but the, it was actually the people at live golf were, were pretty accommodating. I mean, I think they were happy to have any reporters show up at their tournaments, but in unwinding, the whole thing it was really Mickelson's people, his his management company, Andrew Getz and his swing coach, like they were the heavies who, who sent in the goons. It wasn't really live per se. Now, Norman kind of, I think, wandered into the middle of the whole situation. He. would clearly could have interceded and de-escalated it and he chose not to. And then he lied about it, which was really lame. Um, so, um, but I think that was more about Phil Nicholson than live golf per se. And, um, you know, it doesn't, it's not my golf, my golf game. I don't hit it down the middle very often, but as a reporter, that's kind of the way I try to play it. And so I was traveling on two passports between the live golf events and the PGA tour events. And, uh, I think that the, the folks that live saw pretty quickly that I was going to at least be fair to them. Um, and so they were, um, they treated me pretty well. I mean, they're, they're pros the people who in their media department, they've they've been doing this a long time. Someone came from the PGA tour and so it it was fine. Um, yeah, it was interesting. The, um, the PGA tour folks seemed to be more pressed when I was covering the rival tour than, than the other way around. Um, you know, it was, Things became very tribal very quickly in golf. Of course, we saw it with the players, but it also happened with the media. And uh, you know, it's sort of symptomatic of modern life. You know, especially American politics, but I I think politics everywhere. Like, Mm. you have to pick a side and you have to defend it to the death, and you're not allowed to change your mind, even even when new information is presented. You know, it's like um, there's not a lot of nuance. There's there's not a lot of middle ground and i tried to stake that out i think it served me well in the reporting of the book because i was able to to hear from both sides that that got complicated because you know to some degree live versus the tour was this information war and so i had both sides trying to spin me and um because again there just weren't that many reporters who were going to both tours mm. and um so it was it, w- it was interesting challenge interpersonally you know i um, trying to navigate these complex relationships, and there was certainly a lot of a lot of bitterness, a lot of anger, a lot of resentment from from the players on each side towards the others. And um, you know, you saw that in tweets, you saw it in in press conference barbs, but I got a lot of it as well, and it informs parts of the book. And you know, some of the excerpts that that, that came out already captured that spiciness. I mean. I, uh, I would I, the book has a lot of different textures and tones and that, that's just one of them I, it is a, a serious minded look at, at a big historical moment for the sport but no doubt uh, there's there's a lot of energy in these pages because that's just how that, the story was going day after day you know it was just constant news breaks and developments and and dust ups and and flare-ups and and little mini controversies and so to chronicle all that, you know, it was inevitable that you're going to have that feeling on the page at times. Yeah, absolutely. To to what extent do you
1: think social media played a, a part in that as well? Because, listen, we, we've all spoken about live bots and all that sort of stuff. And, you know, to, to your point, people got really passionate and really tribal and, you know, decided which side they were on very quickly and then never strayed from that. If anything, it got more and more vicious on Twitter, on Facebook. What, what's your take on that in terms of how those platforms maybe
0: accentuated the, the divide? Uh, no question. It, um, you know, Twitter especially, but Instagram as well. And it's, you know, I've seen this even in the launching of this book where, you know, one quote or, or one little moment that can be part of a much larger story uh, it, it gets taken out of that story and sent around on its own, you know, sort of devoid of context. And you, you know, you have nuclear golf, you have Zyre golf, you have all these sort of aggregating um, sites and they find the juiciest stuff. And then they just, they just blast it out into the world. And a lot of people only see that one quote or that, that one tweet or that mm, one so true. Instagram post, but they don't actually ever read the whole story, let alone the whole book. And um, so, it, it definitely f- gets people going, you know, it's it f- they're good at what they do. I mean, they, they find these little nuggets and it, it, it sort of just pours gasoline on the whole thing. And uh, so, yeah, it, the, the, it was interesting. Some of, some of the so-called live bots are, are actual humans who do have a point of view. A lot of the accounts seem to be, you know, farmed out. They all were started around the exact same time. They have almost no followers. And, Um, I didn't I didn't get too deep in the weeds on that stuff, but I I do I do look and it it makes sense. I mean, we know about how how different nation states um use use these social media platforms for for propaganda purposes. I mean, on some level, that's that's what was happening. You have I I mentioned this in the book. You know, Mohammed bin Salman, Saudi Arabia as a whole. They've long looked at Twitter as as a disinformation platform, mm. and and really the way that Jamal Khashoggi got ensnared in in all of this stuff was one one of his close friends and confidants, another dissident, his DMs were hacked by by Saudi Arabian operatives. They they had access to this guy. They got access to his phone. Then they could read his text messages with Khashoggi, and that that's when things went into were set in motion when they realized that, you know, he was becoming this, this more organized, unified voice of dissent for the whole regime. And so, you know, there, there's a sinister element to, it's not just these annoying tweets that all of us have to deal with, but there's, there's, there's larger things at at play here. And so, um, you know, live golf is, is an arm of the Saudi Arabian government in a lot of ways. And it's, it's a public, disinformation campaign on some level. And so it was not immune to these these more powerful forces. Uh, but then beyond that, you you know, there was so much sniping. There's only a handful of times when the players actually came together at the majors. Otherwise, they were often separated by an ocean or um, certainly by these the divide between the tours. And so social media became this tool. And having players go after players on social media is a somewhat new phenomenon that, that really was – you know, went to a whole different level during during this this saga. So yeah, it it definitely it be, it became a way for everyday golf fans to register their feelings about live and about this this divide, but it was it was sort of stakeholders and other people who are more directly involved in the story. I I think used used it in a more sophisticated way. So uh yeah it, it's it's a piece of the puzzle in 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 this this larger narrative about about how live was perceived and how this story played out over time i guess one of the questions that a lot of people are asking is you know why golf why did
1: the saudis have such an interest in in this particular sport yes they've they've dabbled in other sports and we can see the investment now in in formula one in particular and and soccer as well with not just newcastle united but the saudi pro league and the the aggressive recruitment that's been going on there which is Awfully familiar to those of us who follow golf. But
0: yeah, why why golf? Why why was it so ripe for the picking for them? I mean, on some level, it's all about one person. And that's, you know, His Excellency Yashir Al-Rumayan. Like, he is a golf nut. He loves golf as much as any of us. And it's a, a passion of his. It's it's a tool for business, like a lot of people use it. But but mostly, it's just how he gets away from it all. And, and he just loves the game. I mean, there's a funny quote in the book from Keith Pelly where he says, you know, if Yasir was a volleyball guy, they'd be building volleyball <laughs> arenas in Saudi Arabia and they'd be hosting volleyball world championships, and they'd be creating a volleyball super league. Like, um, <laughs> so and strange. there's a lot of tr- It's so true. I mean, Yasir just loves golf. And then his his lieutenant, you know, Majed Al-Saror, who's now been pushed aside, but he was the same way. I mean, he was actually an even better player. And so that's what's interesting in this story is. A lot of people want to make the Saudis the bad guys, and in in some ways that's really easy to do, but Yasir's feelings about golf are as pure and genuine as Jimmy Dunn's or Jay Monahan's, or, for that matter, Tiger Rory's. I mean, he just loves the game, and he does see it as a vehicle for betterment, and he would love for it to be a bigger part of of Saudi society. Do you think that's an earnest you know, love the game there. Do you think he truly believes,
1: because we've heard sports washing, we've heard that term being thrown around that, you know, a lot of people claim that they don't really have any intention of changing the the Saudis. Do you
0: you believe that they do? I I think two things can be true at once. I mean, golf is also a great vehicle to launder your reputation and to try and expand into new markets and Mm. to try and, and create business relationships and try and advance the larger goals of an entire regime. So that's happening as well. But for Yasir, it's definitely a real thing. I mean, I observed him in a lot of these these live events. And you've never seen a happier guy than than Yasir during the Pro Am because he'd play like three holes with, with Phil <laughs> yeah. and get a chipping lesson. Then he'd he'd jump in his cart and go play a few holes with with Bryson and, and talk about, you know, quantum physics. And then he would go over to Dustin Johnson and get a get a a lesson on you know how to drive the ball longer and straighter and then then he'd go over and play a few holes with Cam smith and work on his work on his putting and it was like fantasy camp for him and he was he was exuded this like this joy I mean I, I think about I had a cousin who was obsessed with baseball and he would pay like $15,000 to go to the Los Angeles Dodgers fantasy camp and he could take ground balls with like all these broken down old ball players, you know, who were just playing out the string and they were in their fifties and sixties and fat and out of shape, but they would, they would turn up for the check. But this was like, this was the real fantasy camp for Yasir. I mean, he was, uh, he was not only was he welcomed in this, this, this inner sanctum, but um, you know, these guys loved him because he was the one writing the checks. And so he was hosting the parties and he would have guys out on his yacht they're in Saudi Arabia, and he was the toast of the town. So yeah, he the, the love of golf is definitely legit, but there are other things at play. And uh, but when when you look at you know the Vision twenty thirty, which is you know MBS's plan to remake the Saudi economy and and to remake the, its society, really, I mean, two of the pillars are sports and tourism, and golf combines that in a very unique way. I mean, you look at what. golf has done for dubai i mean it put it on the map Mm -hmm. for the international business community and it's been a huge thing for dubai and that's a flat crowded city saudi arabia has you know 1500 miles of coastline it has these soaring mountains they could have some incredible golf destinations that would marry sport and tourism and that's part of the return on the investment for live golf i mean you get uh, you know, Phil Mickelson to design the golf course and you get Paulina Gretzky to do the interiors of the hotel. And you can leverage that star power in a way that, um, you know, there's, there's a this huge resort being built outside of um, Riyadh right now there. It's being marketed as the Beverly Hills of Riyadh. And one of the selling points is a Greg Norman designed golf course. So when pe- people say, you know, they're just throwing their money away for live and they'll never get the investment back. There's other ways to to gauge the effectiveness of of what the Saudis are getting out of th- this investment in golf, and um, I think they have a much bigger picture than just this one little golf circuit. And you know if if you can if you can peel off all the very wealthy Middle Eastern travelers instead of going to Dubai, they, they start coming to Saudi Arabia. That that is a huge industry, and. You know the, all the Brits who go to Dubai in the winter because it's still kind of cold in the Mediterranean and they just want to play golf and get some sunshine like if you can if you can get them to come to to Saudi Arabia I mean now you're talking about real industries of tourism of you know I have just read that they they're going to try and reanimate this old Saudi airline and they just they just bought I don't know 60 dreamliners and <laughs> so golf tourism <laughs> is powerful I mean you know what it does for Scotland and oh Ireland. yeah um and if Saudi Arabia doesn't have that history, but they do have the potential to to build some incredible spots. So so Live Golf is, is about a lot more than just 14 tournaments a year. Obviously, you, you're writing
1: the book at a time of, I guess, great flux and turmoil within the game as well, which I'm sure must have been, I don't know, it must have led to a few rewrites. You know, you had a number of key figures leave live at the end of last year. Then, obviously, June... I think June the 6th, was it? And then, bang, peace, inverted commas, breaks out with uh, the announcement of the framework agreement. Give me an insight into your thinking at that time, Alan. I mean, with, to what extent did you take that with a pinch of salt? what extent did it force you to do some rewrites? How did that impact you?
0: Yeah, that was one of the challenges, was reporting this story in real time, because mm-hmm. it was always changing and evolving. Uh, that was part of the fun. I mean, it was like writing a bucking Bronco, but it was it was also <laughs> tough. Um so you'll you'll love this bit. It's really funny. So at some point in like January or February, my editor said, How's the book going? You know, and I said, Oh, I'm having a great time. I'm learning so much. It's, you know, the words are pouring out of my fingertips. He's like, Okay, great. When can I have it? And <laughs> um, you know. I've always felt like the book had to come out this year in 2023 because the story was peaking and who knows what the future held. And so we decided, okay, working backwards to, to make that happen. The book became, it was due June 1st. At that point we're through the meat of the, of the, the golf calendar. I'd still have time to include anything that happened at, at the U S open or the open championship. And, you know, as, as, takes a few months to get a book to bed. So there's always a little chance to rewrite and make, make tweaks. But so the deadline became June 1st and that turned out to be a Thursday. My editor had to go out of town. He said, you know, I'm not going to get to it until Monday. So let's make your deadline June 5th. So I stayed up late on the night of the 4th. I added one coat of polish. I sent it in and June 5th was one of the happiest days of my life. I've (laughs) never felt such relief. And I got a massage. I took a nap. I took a bath. I I took my kids out for the celebratory dinner and I went to bed feeling so happy and so peaceful and so relieved. And I woke up the next morning and the world was on fire and um, I wound up, you know, that touched off a a crazy couple months of work. I added another 15,000 words. Of course, I had to go through the whole manuscript and massage some passages, take some things out. Add some foreshadowing, change some verb tenses, you know, to make it cohesive. Mm-hmm. Um, and while that that was it was tough, it's like you just ran a marathon. They're like, oh wait, no, you have to run ten more miles. Um, <laughs> yeah, exactly. they, they tell you that at the finish line. Um, you know that was June six was a tough day for me personally, but um, I'm happy the way it played out because if if the framework agreement had come down when the book was already being printed, I would have been devastated. I would have been crestfallen as it is now, it's like we have the whole story in this book. And and folks have said, well, we don't know the ending, but really we do. There's only three possibilities. Either the framework agreement will be consummated as is, or it's going to change and evolve probably through the influx of private equity money from you know, U.S. firms, which will dilute the Saudi influence and make it more palatable to the, the U.S. public and lawmakers and, and the players and the fans. Or the whole thing is going to blow up and they're going to go back to being competitors, you know, the PJ tour and live golf. I cover all three scenarios in the last chapter in great detail and kind of lay it out, you know, what it all means. So I think I'm a um what, um, you know, books are still a somewhat old fashioned industry. Like when, when you have a big book coming out, they have to reserve shelf space with the booksellers. They have to get the, the salespeople excited. You have to reserve the printing presses. You have to buy the paper and the glue. And there's been this worldwide glue shortage for reasons not to explain. <laughs> so um, paper costs going up and
1: spiraling all the time. Yeah, all of that, all yeah, of yeah, that yeah. stuff. So,
0: um, so you know, we had to get we had to lock in a date. It was a date we chose, and in some ways, it worked out beautifully. But it was it was a stressful, hectic end of the process. But overall, it made for a better book, and and I think a better reading experience. Sure does. Of those three outcomes, what's your opinion? Where do you think we're gonna end up with all this? It's amazing because even, you know, what's happening in Gaza right now has an effect. You know, MBS puts out this statement affirming his support for the mm. Palestinians makes it that much harder for an American institution like the PJ Tour to, to partner with the public investment fund. You know, there's just so much that we can't anticipate and we can't know. But I do think that the middle ground is the most likely where i've been talking to guys in the private equity world and they've been sniffing around for years i mean rain capital pledged 500 million dollars to the pgl in Mm -hmm. 2019 um you know phil mickelson went to silver lake another giant private equity firm tried to get them involved as kind of this end around um you know these guys they would love on a personal level they all love golf they want to at the table professional sports has proven to be a great investment vehicle i mean you look at the franchises of every team whether it's in the, the english premier league or it's a national football league in the u.s like the valuation just go up and up the tv deals i mean you, you you can't help but make money investing in professional sports it seems like so they would private equity wants to get even deeper into that world and um as i said it, it becomes a way to sell this as you know the Saudis are just one of our investors. You know the public investment fund is right there with with all these other big private equity firms, and I think in that scenario people have fewer objections. It also brings the money that Jay Monahan needs because he's written some checks he cannot cash mm, yep. to his players. He's made all these promises, um, but the tour was going bankrupt between having to pay for the for all these elevated purses themselves, the legal fees, all of it. So, um. Consummating a framework agreement is is very important to the tour. And um, I think this one will get tweaked and it'll evolve. And in the end, it'll been a, have been a very tumultuous period for professional golf. But the payoff for the fans might be a better, more unified global schedule where you take the, the 12 best tour events, you take the six best events from from the European tour, you sprinkle in a couple live events. And all the top players turn up for, for every one of these tournaments. And instead of competing with each other for the best players, like, you know, sometimes you have a good tournament in Europe, you have a good tournament in the U.S. and, and the players have to choose. Now you get the best players together all around the world and uh, it could be gangbusters. So um, that that it may be a very challenging um, process to get there, but if they can consummate it, then I, I think the final product could be pretty cool. What
1: you've just described there sounds awesome, and the thing about awesome things, like any anything good, well, it doesn't come easy, does it? And change is, well, we're as a species, we're pretty resistant to it. I'm I'm just fascinated to see how 2024 goes because 22 was so divisive and bitter and angry. Kind of feel like 24 has got a little bit of that coming around the corner, but we will see. Just a couple of things before we finish up, Alan. So, the 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 first of those. The news, obviously, is just broken this week. Your, your long-time colleague, a great writer, uh, Michael Bamberger, was pretty much first there with the, the Patrick Cantley stuff, with the the Hatgate incident and all that kind of carry-on. That then has, has, has accelerated the conversation about players and how they're compensated. Are we going to reach a ceiling, do you think, in terms of how much these guys are getting paid? Is, is that, as is, is a cap, something that, you know, it's, I
0: know it's popular in other American sports, but is that possible in golf, do you reckon? Well Cantley is a fascinating character in all this and he pops up um near the end of the book because he is on the he's one of the player directors on the PGA tours board and he's gonna have to vote on any any deal and he's he's known for driving very hard bargains. I mean another player who's been involved in tour governance described Cantley as a terrific penis. <laughs> that was <laughs> that was his quote to me, which is you know basically the guy's a dick and he's hard to deal with <laughs> And he only cares about the top players. You know, he's, he's not in it for the journeyman. Uh, he, he wants to make his life better and more lucrative and the guys of his station. And that's a challenge when you're a big membership organization with 200 players who have very different interests and concerns than the guys at the very top of the money list. So his role is going to be fascinating. And, you know, one of the independent directors, you know, drawn from the business world, On the tour board, this guy Randall Stevenson, he resigned in protest Mm. um, because of the framework agreement and because of the way he was treated in that process. Cantley put himself in charge of the the committee to find his successor. So he's (laughs) kind of consolidating power. And um, so it's going to be a very, the behind the scenes tales of how this agreement gets done or doesn't. It's fascinating. But, it's funny that, isn't it? I mean, pretty much every other young
1: kid that that's grown up and has now made their way onto the PGA tour. I'm thinking particularly of Justin Thomas. They grew up idolizing Tiger Woods. It feels, in Patrick Cantley's case, like he was growing up
0: idolizing Tim Fincham almost, doesn't it? <laughs> that's really. Well, I might steal that line. That's good. Um, yeah, or Machiavelli, or yeah, you know, yeah. Like it's, you can you can come up with a Alexander the Great. I mean, you know, whoever. Like, there's few people we could we could we could we could speculate, or but not Caesar,
1: because neither he nor your
0: team could conquer Rome a couple of weeks ago. So there you go, tough but fair. But um, but to your question about player compensation, I mean that that's a that's a big thing, you know. Because Cantley, part of the reason why he's so bitter is he turned down seventy five million dollar offer from Live Golf. Mm. So, uh, you know, guys like that, they want to be made whole. And how do you do that if if the framework agreement is consummated, that this new for profit entity is created? The, the idea is to give equity in this uh, in this new business to the top players. Obviously, Tiger and Rory, but even a guy like Cantley might get a piece. But I think what we've learned is there's no rules anymore. You know, the, the quaint notion that a golfer should only make money on the weeks that he makes a cut, like those days are long gone. I mean, this this new company, whatever they call it, they could put the top players on salary. And say, okay, Rory, in exchange for you playing in these 20 tournaments, we're gonna to give you a salary of $50 million. And whatever you take in, in prize money is your bonus. And Patrick Cantlay will give you $10 million as salary. Or, you know, the tour could go to an appearance fee kind of system, which other tours have and 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 kind of push the bill onto the sponsors. I just think that what what has been we're in an era of unprecedented greed among the top players. They want to get paid any way they can, and they don't care about the old model. You know, Live kind of blew that up. So um, we'll see how creative things get. But uh, if you have private equity money and you have Saudi money and you have TV money, uh, the players are going to want a piece of all of that. So I think that uh, it's never been a better time to be a young golfer because there's there's going to be riches coming your way that were unheard of even two years ago, undreamed of. And, um, I think, I think the paychecks are just going to keep going up in the short term. Now, you know, the, what the tour bumped up against was the sponsors were rebelling. They, they didn't want to pay any more. And that's why you have to bring in these outside investors. And, you know, the, the Saudis are unique in that they don't necessarily want a return on their investment right away. You know, they have a 10 year plan. They have, you know, this vision 2030, I guess it's seven years now, but they're, they're looking long-term private equity firms. They, they want their money back. I mean, they're not, they're not charities. They Mm -hmm. want to make a profit and they usually want it in a year or two. So um, how can the tour, this, this new for-profit tour, how can they make more revenue? That's going to be interesting. And, you know, a lot of times that gets offloaded on the fans. It's like when you sign huge, you sign players, huge contracts, ticket prices go up. So I think that, Um, there's going to be a tension there between the players wanting to get paid, the money guys wanting to get paid, and uh, trying to cater to the fans. And that's going to be a tough one to navigate. And that's where the Saudis are helpful because they have a longer-term view and they're they're like, they'll let it ride. And they, they can help fund things in the short term. So the idea that the tour is going to walk away from the Saudis entirely, I don't think that's ever going to happen because they need the money. But also, if the framework agreement blows up, then Live Golf goes back to being a competitor of the PGA Tour. And the barrier, you know, the stigma of joining Live has been greatly diminished because Tim Fincham and Jimmy Dunn and later Rory McIlroy said, hey, we like these guys. They're our partners now. Let's help them. Let's bring them into the game. Let's leverage them. You know, they're good people. We believe in them. You know, they got this warm embrace from the golf establishment. Even from corporate America, you know, the signal was you can do business with them now. And so the tour does not want to be in a position where it's competing against live again, because they could, you know, the tour could lose a whole generation of top players if it's an open market. And uh, so it's, there's a lot of pressure to get this deal done. I think it will get done. But what, what comes next is going to be fascinating
1: yeah, and they'll all live happily ever after, potentially, or or not. Final question, <laughs> and I, I have to ask, and I kind of hate myself for asking this as well, because it's maybe a little unfair, but here goes. You and Phil, you guys were the ones pretty much at the outset of all this. How are you guys now? Is there a relationship there? Have you had a conversation, or is that is that relationship done? It's, it's pretty
0: frosty. You know, a- after getting bounced out of this press conference and all the... Sort of the drama around that. I just gave Phil a wide berth for basically the rest of 2022 mm. because I didn't. I didn't want it to look like I was trying to start anything, and so I didn't really ask him questions in press conferences. I just let him do his thing. And um, but the start of 23 is as I was deeper into you know writing "Live and Let Die." I mean, Phil was the center of the maze on all of this. It's incredible. He was negotiating with the sa. Well, he was negotiating with the Premier Golf League. Then the Saudis came on the scene. He was negotiating with the Saudis. He was going back to the PGA tour to try and better his station there. And then he did this end around, where he tried to create his own breakaway circuit using private equity money and basically took the, the intellectual property of the premier golf league. I mean, Phil was working four sides of the street simultaneously. It's incredible. (laughs) And it is all brought out in this new book. And it's, it's, he, he knew the state of play better than any other golfer. And so I, I wanted to talk to Phil for this book. I had a feeling what the answer was going to be, but that's never really deterred me before. So I, I went up to him at the the um the season opener in Mexico for Live Golf and um asked if, if you know I could ask him some questions and he uh impolitely declined. And so um that that's just kind of where it is with Phil. I mean, he knows more than anybody else about all of this stuff. And I, I do I do bring his role to light in this in this book, and it's there's so many eye rolls like i mean it's just he's just such a rascal and he's such a muckraker and he's such a pot stirrer and he's so, an agent of chaos isn't he he's an that's a yeah he's an agent of chaos and so uh, i i didn't go too heavy on phil because i didn't want this book to feel this new one to feel like a sequel to mm. the biography but phil's cameos are priceless <laughs> and they're funny and they're groan inducing but on some level he was right about a lot of this stuff and he he made made a lot of money for his colleagues and even for himself so it's not total vindication but i think you know phil's role in this as it becomes better understood as people realize how much he did reset the market and how much he forced golf to change whether it wanted to or not so agent of chaos that that's that's a good I, actually that should have been the title to my my Phil biography but um, I think yours was perfectly good don't worry <laughs> <laughs> anyway, yeah no but he's he's a he's a fundamental character you just you can't escape Phil he's everywhere in this story <laughs>
1: absolutely right Alan thank you so much for your time it's always a pleasure to catch up I love it when our paths cross and congratulations again on the book Live and Let Die it is an absolute it's just a it's a phenomenal page turner so well done indeed and yeah, i h- highly recommend everyone listening you go and check it out she won't be disappointed until next time mr Shipnik. thank you very much indeed
0: yeah thanks for having me always a pleasure mate.
1: big thank you to alan for his time absolutely i i, I, I can't stress this enough i've, I've read the book it is absolutely fascinating. Whether you like Live or hate Live or whatever, go and buy it, go and read it. It's <laughs> if nothing else, it's massively entertaining. And Alex, I know that you've received your copy as well. You're you're working your way through it just
2: now. Yeah, I think we all just want to be like Alan Shipnugg when we grow up, don't we? <laughs> <laughs> Living the good life out in California, writing books,
1: throwing out opinions. Getting called out by Justin Thomas. <laughs> I mean, that's what I want, getting called out by the top players. That's what I live for. <laughs> no, he's a fantastic writer, as Alan. So yeah, go and check out Live and Let Die. It's available very soon and available for pre-order on Amazon.co.uk as well. I highly recommend it. Right, Potter of Merit, usually we would do this. As I said, Bryce is away and Alex and I have discussed it off air We're just going to skip right past this. Because it's now a three-person format, and it'd just be weird to try and do it with two. And uh, I just my head hurts enough from the live stuff, and I, I don't want to give myself any more headaches this week. But Alex, it would be completely remiss of us not to point out that something quite significant is happening on the the PGA Tour this week: the Shriners Children's Open. And there is a, a special guest, shall we say?
2: <laughs> yes. Well, Lexi Thompson is playing the LPGA superstar, megastar. What do we want? To, what's bigger, superstar or megastar?
1: Let's just go with
2: eleven-time PGA I'm LPGA a winner, absolute legend of the women's game. <laughs> and she so is, I, to be fair. Yeah, she is. I want to say she's the fifth woman to play LPGA player to play on the PGA tour. Is that right?
1: Ooh, good question. Annika, Michelle. We, mm,
2: yeah, I think you're probably right. But look, I, I absolutely love stuff like this. I think it's it's good to have that kind of inclusion. It's good to have that crossover. You know, we talk about the events that happen through the year which are mixed, you know, the, the uh what is now the Grant Thornton invitation is yes. that what it's called the the little what did you call it? Boondoggle. That's the, the hit one. And giggle. <laughs> hit and giggle. Hit and giggle, yeah, year. that's it. uh, I like Boondoggle. I think we should. Of all the American things we've adopted, that is one that we haven't (laughs) yet and absolutely (laughs) should be the case. It's good for the tournament. It's good for the Shriners, which obviously uh, does a lot of work for, for charity. Wonderful PR. My only concern is that they've got Lexi at a time when she is playing horrible golf mm-hmm. so there is every possibility you know she she's barely made a cut on the LPGA this year so there's every possibility she misses the cut this year uh, at this tournament this week sorry and it just it just gives those online idiots a bit of ammo which I don't necessarily like but I've become quite good at ignoring those morons over the years it seems a bit odd that they've shoved her out with Kevin Roy and Trevor Wabilo, Don't know how it, if that's how you pronounce that's, it. No that's disrespect. better than I was gonna attempt that. That's that's a pretty uh, pretty solid effort. Absolutely zero disrespect to those guys, but never heard of either of them. So why have they they you know they've, they've done it sort of seems like they've done the hard part, like mm-hmm. with this, you know, this wonderful PR move to get her in. And then they've just sort of shoved her out. Like they've it's almost like burying the lead, really, isn't it? Like it's yes. a bit A bit odd in that sense, but no, really looking forward to seeing how she does. I I genuinely really hope she can make the cut and maybe even contend because that would be obviously a wonderful story for golf and a wonderful story. Is that success for her this week making the cut? I think so. I mean, uh, purely on the basis, and I'm not, this isn't like a men's versus women's thing. Making, if this was an LPGA event making the cut would be a success for her because she has been in such horrible form. Mm-hmm. So I think if she makes the cut this week, she's absolutely over the moon. I think that's, I mean, if you asked her, I think that's probably her goal.
1: Yeah, yeah, I'd agree with that. Trevor Verbilo, if that's Verbilo. what we're calling him, he is currently yeah. 532nd on the OWGR and Kevin, Roy, <laughs> and Kevin Roy is 474th. So, yeah, you're quite right. It's a, it's a bit of a strange grouping together. We'll see how she gets on. Uh, best luck to her anyway, because, Absolutely. A, as you say, the worst thing that could happen is that she finishes dead last and it just brings all the the wits back out onto social media and, yeah, it becomes something that it shouldn't. But I'm slightly surprised, like you, that she's agreed to do it. I suspect she's been handsomely compensated mm-hmm. for doing so. Her form has turned around a little bit in the last uh, month or so, I want to say. She was fifth on her most recent start in the LPGA at the Ascendant uh, just last week. And prior to that, Walmart Arkansas Championship, she was tied eighth at Pinnacle Country Club the week before. So seems like she's bouncing back after a, oh a tricky Solheim Cup. So let's hope she doesn't have any shanks and has to answer any questions about (laughs) (laughs) them. Joking aside, best of luck to Lexi. We'll finish up, as we always do, with Honesty Box. And this is a leftover from Bunkered Podcast Live last week. We incorporated, as you'd expect, some elements of of the show into the live environment. And one of those was Honesty Box. We encouraged people who went along to write their little questions down on a card and stick it in an actual physical honesty box. I feel like I should share a picture of it, but I can't for reasons that will come clear next week. There's there's some shit that's under embargo, and I'm going to leave that hanging. But yeah, we had loads of questions. We couldn't get through them all on the night, but I was looking back through some of them the other day, and this one made me chuckle. Alex, if golf had a Royal Rumble in the wrestling ring, who would win? Now, we know what a Royal Rumble is. You and I, about the same age, we grew up in the WWF era. The Attitude when, Era.
2: Yes, exactly. When, the Rock and Stone Cold Steve Austin. Yeah. Well, I, I was thinking prior to that with well, yeah, Warrior was, and yeah, Hulk Hogan was, and guys like I mean, Jake the Snake. Oh, Jake the Snake, what a hero. Shawn Michaels was my hero. When Bret Hart. This, this, this really is one for the older listeners, but when Shawn Michaels broke up the rockers by putting marty genetti through the barbershop window oh. i mean that was the first time i experienced heartbreak and i think i was probably about seven or eight years old
1: yeah i think i don't it, want to talk about it for me it was probably when isla fisher left home and away that was that was legitimate <laughs> heartbreak i'm not quite over it yet but yeah brilliant question so explain for anyone who doesn't know what a royal rumble is alex before we get into the golfers what is
2: a royal rumble well I'm assuming it's still the same format because I haven't seen it for many years but back in our day it was you'd start off with a couple of wrestlers was it t- it was two that started off wasn't it Think and then so, yeah. every 30 seconds they threw another wrestler into the ring and wrestlers were eliminated from the tournament by being thrown it wasn't a usual uh, pin count it was being thrown over the top rope so and then basically last man standing Yes. Is essentially what it was, wasn't it? Battle Royale, essentially. Was Battle it? Royale, exactly. So I think that term was taken though when they were naming it. Um <laughs> I I think that I can't see past John Rahm. Now <sighs> There was sort of a history of the big guys in Royal Rumbles never really doing that well, because generally you got them near the ropes and they were pretty easy to topple over. (laughs) But I sort of feel like John Rahm is in that perfect sweet spot between being like the big guy, uh, but also being like manoeuvrable and quite athletic and would be able to handle himself in that situation. So I, I sort of thought maybe a Shane Lowry, but then I think perhaps he just... I think you get Shane Lowry anywhere near the ropes and anyone's just going to sort of poke him over the top. Yeah, He's gone. Yeah. He just seems a bit too, perhaps not as agile on his feet as he needs <laughs> to be for a Royal Rumble. But yeah, I, 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 I can't see past John Rahm, if I'm honest with you. And also, you know, obviously, re- spoiler alert, wrestling is scripted. So what? I've, <laughs> I've just destroyed your childhood. Excuse I? me? I genuinely genuinely remember when I was about 14 having an argument with a lad in the village I grew up. Honestly, I grew up in a village of about 500 people, so obviously all the kids of all ages just hung out together. And I remember specifically being about 14, arguing with a lad who was probably 18, 19, who kept trying to tell me that wrestling was fake. And my <laughs> only argument was why would they do all that if it wasn't real? Like, why would they do it? And he's going, because they get paid an absolute shitload of money. And I'm sort of forty, like wide-eyed just going... <laughs> Please tell me that's not true. <laughs> Absolutely devastated. But no, I th- I think that the, the not only in terms of his ability and my backing John Ram, I think he's the the people's champion that the the script writers would want to win. Or maybe like a bad maybe if they like threw Patrick Reed in and had like a, a a bad guy win. That would be good, wouldn't it?
1: But no, I'm sticking with Rahm. Yeah, right. Argue with it's, me. It's Ryan Fox. Oh, it's Ryan Fox all day long. I know it's not what the script writers want, but He'll just brawl the living daylights out of you. You know he'll. I, I see him tombstoning people and clotheslining yeah. people, and then just. Dad was a rugby player. Yeah, there you go. I mean, he, he's a he's a he's a solid unit that boy, and I think he'll take no prisoners. I also, and this is a little bit controversial, but Aaron Rye, not out okay. of, not for physique reasons, but he wears two gloves, so his grips bound to be better with all those oiled yeah. up bodies. So he'll just oh. be flinging people out of the <laughs> ring,
2: left, right, and center. Well, Aaron Rye would probably wrestle the way that he plays golf in that kind of like what slow? Who? Well, <laughs> I saw. Well, I meant more in terms of you know what's this guy gonna add here to this tournament, and then suddenly he just comes in and destroys everyone and finishes second. And everyone's like, oh, okay, I'm gonna start taking notice of this guy. Alternatively, it could be Brian Harmon, but he'll just be picking people off, you know, from outside the ring,
1: and just he's the last one standing when he's you know. Bow and arrowed everyone out of the way. Who would be the first person out, do you reckon? Oh, God. Because I've got a theory and I don't think you'll like it.
2: Just, it would just be, but it would, (laughs) there was that, my favourite ever. WrestleMania, not WrestleMania, Royal Rumble entrance was when the, do you remember the Bushwhackers? Those yeah. Weird, like red <laughs> rednecks that used to come in, and they do their stupid little dances, as they were coming down the thing, they literally I can't remember what year it was, it would have been early mid-90s, and they walked down straight in the ring, straight out the other side, and I, I just I can't see any, like imagine like, you're in the ring you're, uh, and you just you see Nikolai Hoygaard coming down the thing, like you're just going to pick that guy up and just th- like you're, if you're Ryan Fox or John Rahman, you're in the ring and, you, and Nikolai Hoygaard gets in, you're just going, Yeah, sorry, mate. And you're just throwing <laughs> him straight out. That, that guy, I love you, Nikolai, but you are offering nothing in a Royal Rumble scenario, I'm afraid.
1: Yeah, him and Go on, Rasmus would me. team up together, It'd be the great Danes. That would be their their tag Ooh, team nickname I like it not bad eh? no it's got to be Victor Hovland he'd be first out so he'd probably just walk it straight in and go ha, how you doing guys big smile on his yeah. face Sh- should I just go yeah do you want me just to leave no problem at all you I'll, guys back on I'll throw
2: myself over if you want That's...
1: <laughs> or Jason Day he probably wouldn't make it to the rings he'd sneeze and then probably tear a
2: pectoral muscle or something mm-hmm.
1: like that for <laughs> Jason we,
2: well I think that with Hovland as well Like we, we all saw that amazing clip after the Ryder Cup where he was you know spraying his mates with champagne and then just pissing himself laughing that would just be him he would just like go up behind John Rahm and give him like a forearm and Rahm would turn around and Hovland would just be pissing himself laughing and (laughs) and Hovland Hovland would just send him flying over the ropes (laughs) I tell you I wouldn't want to take on Sepp Straka either I think he could do some damage He's got that, well, we sort of learned this at the Ryder Cup, didn't we? When we were sort of standing a bit, like up, it was the first time I'd ever seen Sepp Stracker in person. Obviously seen him on the, on the te- telly plenty of times, but he's got a bit of a baby face about him. Yeah. Something quite, a bit like Ole Gunnar Solskjaer at Man United. Like he's, like, what's he going to do? He looks like a 12 year old and then suddenly absolutely destroys you by scoring four goals in four minutes. <laughs> but can we they just do can next week's pod? Can, can we just do an hour of talking about wrestling and golf? Can we just do that? Why it's, not? Yeah. Absolutely, Nothing else is going to happen next week, is it? <laughs> that's what we were saying this time yesterday, and lo and behold,
1: we've made over an hour and a half's worth of content out of it. At least we, at least we've got backup if we need it. So that's true. Golf, it's never dull, is it? Anyway, Alex, look, thank you so much for your time. Much appreciated no as always. Thank you, Alan Shipnick for for joining us on the call. As always, much appreciated. Thank you to Callaway for their continued support, and thank you most of all to you for listening. We'll be back next week when hopefully Bryce will have returned, having drunk his body weight in Superbok, and I think he's playing some golf when he's out there as well, maybe. So yeah, he'll be regaling us all with really long, boring tales about how Portugal's
2: great and you know how lucky he is. So stay tuned for that. He prefers it to Rome. (laughs) You're going to get a case of Superbok show up on your desk, by the way. The amount of uh, plugs you've given them. Why do you think I'm doing it? (laughs)
1: here's hoping anyway look thank you very much everybody for listening we will be back next week until then enjoy your golf we'll see you soon bye bye